Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Today is World Cancer Day, an international day for awareness of cancer which aims to encourage its prevention, detection and treatment. And in this episode we are going to ask a question. What might need to happen to eliminate a cancer? In particular, cervical cancer. Unlike many cancers, cervical cancer is very treatable and preventable. The main cause of the disease is infection with human papillomaviruses, or HPV, which are spread through sexual activity. But vaccinations are available against these viruses, and they work best when given to adolescents. What's more, if caught early through screening, cervical cancer can be prevented. This has raised hopes that the cancer could be eliminated, and the World Health Organization plans to do that in the next century. But despite this, more than 300,000 people a year still die from the disease, especially in low- and middle-income countries. So, what needs to change? Well, Jenny Gardner in Nature's Opinion team reached out to several cervical cancer researchers from around the world and invited them to put forward their visions for the elimination of cervical cancer. Two of the authors joined Jenny earlier this week to talk through the particular challenges and opportunities facing the low and middle income countries in which they live and work. Here's Jenny. Hi, both of you. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Let's start with some introductions. Sure. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for having me. I am Isha Gadaria. I have been trained as a public health researcher in India, and I've been working on the issue of cervical cancer, trying to understand the barriers and uptake to the vaccine. Thank you, Jenny. I'm Lynette Denny. I'm a gynecological oncologist, and I'm from South Africa, born and bred, and have spent the last 30-so years working in cervical cancer prevention. So I wanted to talk to you both today about the challenges around eliminating cervical cancer in low middle income countries and what we can do to overcome them. So I know that screening approaches like pap smears can be very effective, but in low middle income countries, they can be challenging to implement. Is that right? Well, yes. Historically, the way in which we have prevented cervical cancer is through the pap smear. Now, this approach, in fact, was highly successful in many high-income countries, but this has never really been either initiated or sustained in low- and middle-income countries because of the complexity of not only having to take the test, but to get the test to a laboratory where there are trained personnel 
to interpret the test and then to get the test back to the woman and then to arrange for her to have treatment, that infrastructure has been what has been a huge obstruction to setting up successful screening programs. This kind of connection between screen and treat is one of the key challenges faced in lower middle income countries. And in your pieces, you both focused on vaccination. So I wondered, what are the challenges faced around rolling out vaccination in lower middle income countries? So just to sort of set context, the HPV vaccination is not part of India's national immunization program. And as a group, we had actually done a study, which I was leading, where we were trying to understand what might be some of the causes of hesitancy in uptake of the vaccine. So one of the key things that we've seen in India is that there is a lot of trust in the doctor. So one of the things that the physicians mentioned to us was that they were really not sure about the dosage age of the vaccine. And that was prominently brought about because they said that if they recommend that a vaccine has to be given to a girl as young as nine, it would be misconstrued as something which is related to the debut of sexual activity at that age because of how the human papilloma virus infects. So the physician told us that if we tell that to a parent, a parent would come back and say to us, my daughter is not sexually active at this age. What are you trying to imply? And I am not going to get this vaccination done. There were a few physicians who also told us that they were really also not confident about whether it was actually needed that young. They did say that they were recommending it to women older than 25, and it it had good acceptance at that point of time. But the other thing that we've also seen, Jenny, is that in the society where we are, the cultural context plays a really important role. So sort of pointing it out or communicating as a vaccine where we don't link it directly to sort of the sexual activity, but more to how this is a vaccine that can prevent cancer is probably a better way to communicate it. And I think that is what the government of India will now be doing because we've had an intimation from the government now that they will be introducing HPV vaccine in the National Immunization Program of India, which will start soon. They are going to start only with girls in schools first and then eventually move on, hopefully, to boys as well. Lynette, are the challenges quite different in South Africa? Um, Yes, in South Africa, when we did introduce vaccination initially in 2014, it was very well received and almost 80% of eligible girls received their first dose of the vaccine. What then happened in South Africa is COVID hit and then our coverage for vaccination dropped from over 80% to 3% and had a dramatic impact on vaccination and I'm informed by my colleagues in the National Department of Health, that a kind of a bad smell started to hang around HPV vaccination in South Africa, whereas up to that point, vaccination had been pretty well accepted. After COVID, though, thank goodness, our HPV vaccination program has improved. And in 2023, a further 400,000 girls have been vaccinated. Other countries in Africa have done extremely well. It's been Rwanda, 
where they've had more than 90% coverage of eligible girls. And in terms of other low-income countries, Bhutan has done extremely well. They have vaccinated similar to 95 to 96% of eligible girls. So it is possible to introduce HPV vaccination in low-income countries, but it seems to be absolutely key is the collaboration between government, education, and health, and the political commitment to make this happen so that funds are, number one, earmarked, and number two, it's been shown that you get a much better coverage if you have school-based vaccination, which is what we have in South Africa. And there are many African countries, and not only Africa, but in low-income countries, who have not managed to introduce HPV vaccination because even at $4 a dose, that is too much for those health systems to manage. But I think HPV vaccination is a potentially very powerful tool, but it will take 20 to 30 years, and it will not help those women who are already infected with HPV because it is a prophylactic, not a therapeutic vaccine. Lynn, I think I wanted to probably highlight a couple of points that you had mentioned. I think the key one that stands out for me is the political will. And we've struggled in India to be able to get that. I think, Lynn, you mentioned another point about the cost of the vaccine. I think one of the key things has been a challenge is that in the private sector, the vaccine that's available at a cost is not affordable by all. You have few people who are in the context who are able to afford it in India, while others are not. And I think we have a key development with a vaccine that India has developed. And they are reducing the cost to an extent where it will not be, as Lynn said, close to four or five dollars. So we're hoping that the cost will reduce to less than half of that. And probably the last point that I'd mentioned, Lynn, and I think that strikes me because You were mentioning that there are women who already have some kind of precancerous lesion or are suffering from cervical cancer who need treatment or who need referrals. I think one of the key things that we are seeing is that India does have a program on screening of cancers. But what really happens is that there is not enough strong communication on why this is needed not enough awareness of why people should come. So honestly, when I've spoken to even people, they actually feel that if there is a camp or a screening camp that's being organized, if you go there, the community would feel that you have cancer and that's why you're going there. So I would say that probably communicating in a way where there is awareness generation, but it is accurate, can go a long way in increasing the uptake of the vaccine. And you mentioned that, that communication is key issue. And in your article you outlined a particularly successful communication campaign in Sikkim. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what made that so successful. So they decided that they would again use school-based vaccination method and would use other techniques to try and also get out of school girls because those are also a significant part of the Indian population. One of the key things that they did is while they were preparing for the launch and the introduction of the vaccine, they decided that they would do a six-month communication program and run a campaign making sure that every key stakeholder understood what the vaccine was, 
why it was needed, burst any sort of myths around it, and making sure that everybody around that ecosystem was convinced that this was the right vaccine and therefore should be taken. And while they were doing that, they did encounter problems where people had doubts, people were not getting convinced. So the state department, the health department, had key officials who would go to these places or even schools or even communities and talk to people and clarify all doubts and myths that they might have regarding the vaccine. And that actually led to a successful introduction and even a successful uptake. And I think it was around 97% that they were able to get uptake by in the state of Sikkim. You mentioned there that the rollout was in schools. And Lynn, that's a key focus of your piece, that school-based vaccination is the way to go. Could you tell us why that is? I think that it's the way to go, particularly in countries where there's a high enrollment of girls at schools. And we need to remember that what's known as the extended programs for immunization is really designed for children up to about the age of six. So the HPV vaccine has created a new group to be vaccinated, and that's adolescents. And it's therefore a whole new platform that we need to be creating. And that in many ways has lots of advantages because if you look at the groups in society who get the most amount of health care, adolescents are one of those groups who don't. And they tend to be ignored because they're young and they're healthy and they don't get a lot of intervention. But on the other side of that, if you look at WHO statistics, about 70% of adult illness begins in the adolescent era. So it's an opportunity to link the main intervention, which is vaccination, to other interventions that have tremendous health gains. I mean, one simple one is giving girls anti-worming, for example, deworming, which is a very common problem and is a cause of malnutrition. It's also an opportunity to do linkage to visual acuity, hearing, and a great opportunity for sex education. You know, I don't think any intervention in the world makes people have sex at a young age. I don't think that's a very good argument against vaccination, but it is an opportunity to teach young people about pregnancy control, pregnancy prevention, and safe sex, and sensible and mature sexual activity. So that adolescent platform, I think it's going to be a great opportunity as a very important health intervention. So it's the adolescent nature or requirement of HPV vaccination which makes it so important and and why schools are so important. As you've mentioned, rolling out these school-based vaccination campaigns, the communication campaigns, they require the government to really focus on this. So just finally, I wonder if there's anything that you think should be done to encourage governments to make this a focus of their activities? For me, what we need governments to understand that investing in the prevention of cervical cancer is cost-saving. It contributes to the economy of countries and those clever people who work with numbers, they say that for every dollar invested in cervical cancer prevention, we save $3. 
The women who die from cervical cancer are women in their 40s and 50s, and the loss of a mother, the premature loss of a mother, has a hugely devastating impact on society. And so governments need to knowledge up to really understand, and we need in poor countries to be collecting good, decent, reliable data. And that is a very powerful tool for persuading governments to spend their money wisely in saving women's lives. And I will just add to what Lynn mentioned are two, two key things. One is that the importance of scientific evidence, which is not only accurate, but also is collected in the same cultural context. So if you're talking about low and middle income countries, and if you're talking about, for example, India, we really need to have evidence from that country to be able to convince the government that this is a problem. This is how we can solve it. And that's why you should be giving priority to this issue so that it can be acted upon in terms of a policy or an action by the government. And the second thing that I would say is that, as Lynn had mentioned earlier, adolescents really are a neglected population if we consider them in terms of how they are addressed across the globe, I would say. So I think prioritizing adolescent health is going to be a key in also making sure that this issue gets highlighted. We would be then able to understand from a government perspective how investing in adolescents is useful and how you can have a productive workforce later where you have less burden as a government on dealing with disease and then, of course, less burden on your infrastructure from a healthcare perspective. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. So with that, I'll say bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jenny Gardner in conversation with Lynette Denny from the University of Cape Town in South Africa and Ishu Kataria from RTI International in India. For more on that story, check out the show notes for a link to the comment article. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.